Well, hopefully you're in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and the title of our message this morning is, Follow Me to a New Life. Several weeks back, we started a series here on Sunday morning to address the identity crisis that we find so many Christians within this, this uh, time of year, and also in this time in our culture. Many Christians are asking themselves the question, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? They honestly don't know. And they're trying to rediscover, they're trying to re-identify themselves and understand and to learn maybe for the first time what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of that confusion has been created by the anticipation and expectations that individuals have been given at the moment they've come to Christ. If they've come to Christ thinking that Christ was simply going to be a supplement uh, he was simply there to help them obtain all of their uh, dreams and goals and ambitions and objectives. When that doesn't occur as life goes on, or when difficulties arise, tribulations and troubles occur, they get all freaked out over it and say, what, what happened here? I thought Jesus was supposed to make everything better. I thought he was going to give me the life I always wanted. I thought he was supposed to make everything rosy. I thought that everything was supposed to be perfect after I came to Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of confusion because a lot of people have come to Jesus with those expectations. And don't get me wrong, Jesus does phenomenal things. God does phenomenal things in the life of the believer. It's radical at times what God does. But God is not here to serve you. You are here to serve God. And what we are looking at is we are going back to the source. We are going back to the Gospels. We are looking at uh, individual accounts where Jesus told individuals to follow Him. And then after that invitation had been given... He then qualified what it was going to take to follow him. That there would be a cost involved. That certain things were going to have to be um, considered before you simply came after him. Because there's a very sad text in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. When Jesus um, started his earthly ministry after being baptized by John the Baptist... Many people saw him as the Messiah, and that was a good thing. But their idea of the Messiah was different than God's idea of the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was going to be their great liberator from all of their Roman oppression, all of their woes, all of their issues, and that he was going to return uh, Israel to the zenith that they once enjoyed under the reign of King David. And as this man became more and more popular, more and more people followed him. They were blown away by the miracles, feeding thousands of people, healing the sick, even the dead being raised. Something about this individual was very attractive. And as time went on, all of their hopes and expectations of what they felt Messiah was to be was placed upon Jesus. They saw him, 
They watched him, they followed him, and they placed all of their own presuppositions upon him. And then he began to say really crazy things. Things that the crowd did not understand. Things that caused the crowd to reconsider if they truly desire to follow him or not. And as a result, the crowd started to thin rather than to uh, grow larger. When they began to see that he wasn't there to fulfill all of their personal expectations and to liberate them from the Roman oppression, they began to abandon him. And John 6 records for us that many of the disciples chose no longer to follow him because their expectations haven't been met. He was about to liberate them from oppression, but it wasn't the oppression from the Romans. It was the oppression that sin had placed upon them. But they didn't see that. They didn't get it. They didn't recognize it. But he told them up front. He told them what to expect. He told them what the cost was going to be. And as he did so, and as those reasoned amongst themselves, many, many departed from Christ to follow him no longer. And that's what we're seeing today in a different context. We're seeing many Christians who have claimed Christianity for years, maybe decades, departing from Christ because Christ didn't fulfill their expectation. An expectation and a presupposition that they placed upon God that God never promised. A presupposition and an expectation that they placed upon God, which God never said that He would fulfill, and now they are starting to walk away. And as a result, people are asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like? So we decided to go back to the source. We decided to go back into the Word of God. We wanted to look at every opportunity that we could to see Jesus say, follow me, and then qualify that statement by telling us what he actually is asking us to do. See, in America today, we have adopted this term for Christianity. We call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ. And that's right. We should be believers in Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with that term in and of itself. It's what we have created within that term that I think is becoming a problem. And that problem is this that many Christians today have just uh, reasoned with themselves and they've come to this academic understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and they've come to Him with certain expectations, certain qualifiers that they've placed on the relationship rather than the promises of God that He has made within the relationships. And as a result, they have a skewed picture of God. And as a believer of Jesus Christ... It simply indicates that I've come to an intellectual uh, acknowledgement of who Jesus is, but I don't really want to suffer any of the costs that would be required of me to follow him. That's why the term follower of Jesus Christ, I think, is, is uh, preferred. That first and foremost requires us to believe in him, but then to follow him. You know, how many of you have been engaged in conversations with people and you've tried to bring up your Christian faith to them and one of their, uh, one of their objections right off the bat is, yeah, but all Christians that I meet are such hypocrites. We've all been in those conversations. They say they believe something, but their life doesn't reflect it. 
Now I ask you the question. If someone says to you that they believe something, but nothing in their life over a consistent period of time would indicate that belief, would you not ask the question if they really believe what they say they believe? See, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to believe in me, then you're going to follow me and you're going to do what I did. And then he goes on to state, this is what's going to be required of you to do what I have done. And today we come to that zenith of all the passages concerning discipleship and following after Christ. It is one that has changed so many lives dramatically when they've discovered and understood the meaning of what Jesus was saying. For he's at that point now where the disciples are thinning because he is making a requirement upon them. We do not believe for a moment that we earn our salvation, so I just want to get that out of your mind from the beginning. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But one who says they truly believe, one who has truly been born again, will display the fruits of that regeneration. They'll have a changed heart and a changed mind, and they will begin to reflect the Lord in whom they serve. And their hard attitude should cry out, Lord, I'm willing, but help me. Our hard cry should be, Lord, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And God knows that we can't do this in and of ourselves, and that's why He sent the Holy Spirit to us to allow us to fulfill what He has called us to do. But if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ, we should look to be obedient to our Lord and Savior Jesus. And from the beginning, he qualified the follow me statements. He told people that there was going to be a cost to being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, that many Christians today have not considered. And it's the consideration that we have to take at this moment to really help us through the times of difficulty in our Christian life. Let's be honest. When we became Christians, how many of you did it become more difficult in the world than easier in the world? It did me. My parents for 20 years thought I still was on drugs. This is a fad that he's going to get past. And just earlier this year, my mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And now I'm working on my dad. The point is, is that when God changes someone, he changes them radically. We're not the same person. We're a new creation in Christ. And there is an abundance of joy, and there's grace, and there's mercy, and there's love, and there's this compassion, and there's this strength that we've never had before because now the Spirit of God resides in us. But it doesn't mean everything is going to go perfectly. In fact, things often get more difficult as the world then bears down upon you, saying you're no longer like we are. You're different. You don't have the moral standards that we hold to. You're different. You're going the opposite way. Don't you see everybody else is going this way, but yet you as a Christian, you're going this way. And I look at them and say, yeah, but any dead fish can float downstream. We're swimming against the current. Because you know why? This is not our home we are mere pilgrims. We are merely passing through this time. Heaven is our home with the Lord for all eternity. A new heaven, a new earth. 
That's what we look to celebrate. That's where our home will be. When God once again restores everything to the way it was meant to be before sin infected and infected every single aspect of this creation. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. That's what God promises us. But He told us from the beginning that it was going to be difficult. He told us up front it's going to be difficult and it's going to cost you something. Salvation is a free gift of Christ. There's no doubt about it. Just ask of Him. But following Him will cost you everything. And that's what Jesus wanted His disciples to know. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in our message entitled again, Follow Me to a New Life. And again, I hope you're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Let's read 24 through 28 together. And then we'll take it apart. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Father, we come before You right now, and we ask that You would open our hearts and open our minds to Your Word. Father, this is one of the most key critical passages on discipleship within the Gospels. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would teach us. And that, Father, we would know the cost in following you. That you will give us the strength to accomplish this. But, Lord, let us understand what the expectation should be. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. A statement like this always has to be qualified by its context. You can never just read a verse of the Bible in and of itself and truly understand and know what it means unless you kind of get the context that's around it with that which precedes it and that which succeeds it. And here we have in Matthew 16 that we find that Peter has made a declaration in verses 13 through 20 where he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, Jesus says, well, it's not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you, but my Father above has given you this insight to identify me and to recognize me as the Messiah. But by Peter saying that, he still had a skewed understanding of who the Messiah actually was. He was correct. It was Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. But Jewish thinking had been so tainted by the religious leaders as they went through the Old Testament passages, especially those prophecies found in the book of Isaiah, where they discovered that the Messiah was not going to come necessarily only in glory, but in suffering. And so the religious leaders didn't know how to interpret those uh, passages. They were called the songs of Isaiah, different songs that were sung concerning the Messiah. And they talked about the Messiah suffering. Some even went as far as to say that there possibly was two Messiahs. One would suffer and one would be in glory. 
They didn't understand that there was a first and second coming. In the first coming, the, the Messiah was going to suffer. But in the second, he was going to come in great glory and establish his kingdom here on this earth, physically, permanently, etc. So Peter's thinking was that this is it. The Messiah had arrived. The one that was going to return Israel to its zenith, return Israel to that place of sovereignty, and no longer were they going to be uh, subjected to the evil Roman oppression. This was it. And the disciples that were close to Jesus were going to be his closest confidants in that new kingdom. And there there was a boldness created in Peter that we find in the very next passage. Where Jesus then begins to tell his disciples, prepare his disciples, tell them up front what they can expect. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to suffer. And Peter's taken back by this. Wait a minute. I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were going to come in great glory. I thought you were going to return Israel to its zenith, uh, as we had under the King David, and no more Roman oppression. What do you mean you're going to suffer? Far be it, Lord, from you to suffer. You cannot go. Lord, this shall never happen to you, Peter says. And then Jesus graciously, firmly, intensely calls Peter Satan. The most formidable rebuke that Jesus has given to any of his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's mindset was set upon his understanding and expectations of who he thought the Messiah was to be. And Jesus says, no, you've got to think like God thinks. Big picture, Peter. You've got to get your eyes off of yourself. And what you think you're going to accomplish and what goals you think you're going to uh, complete in following me. Remember at one time, even two of the disciples sent in their most um, staunch you know, uh, individual who would work on their behalf, their mother, to Jesus. Can you imagine that? Mom, go tell Jesus I want to be the best in the kingdom. Please, Mom, i got to have this. Okay, son, what do you mean my boy isn't going to be at the right hand of you? Okay, that's Eric Bible translation, okay? It's one step up from the picture Bible. But they sent their mother in to be an advocate for them, to petition that Jesus may set him on the right hand and on the left. They had the kingdom of God in mind. They had a a new establishment uh, set in, in their pictures fixed, and their eyes fixed on this new picture that they had. And Jesus said, think as God thinks. God made it clear through the Old Testament, but the, the reality of those Old Testament passages were skewed by personal expectation and wrong interpretation. And now Jesus says, think as God does, Peter. And so in the wake of this, he says these words. If you are truly to come after me, if you are going to follow me, he then qualifies it by three different points. 
If you are going to come after me, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, that is to be my disciple, that is to follow after me, notice what he says here. Let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How many of you, when you became a Christian, were uh, introduced to this verse? Isn't that interesting? We haven't been asked to consider the cost in following Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it abundantly clear from the beginning that this is what it was going to require. And the first one of them is one that our culture is absolutely in need of hearing today, especially those within the body of Christ. I am here to tell you this morning, and I'm going to offend many people by what I'm about to say right now. It is not all about you. It's all about Him. Denying ourselves means more than just self-denial. It means much more than just uh, abstaining from certain pleasures at certain times, thinking that I'm doing this for the purpose of Christ. Self-denial is no longer considering oneself whatsoever. Let me give you some examples. As one commentator wrote, the great Warren Worsby, he said, Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when, for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things or activities. But we deny self when we, were, when we surrender ourselves to Christ and are determined to obey His will. David Gusick wrote this, Human nature wants to indulge self, not deny self. Death to self is always terrible, and if we expect it to be pleasant or a mild experience, we, are, we will often be disillusioned. Death to self is the radical command of the Christian life to take up your cross meant one thing, that you were going to die a certain death, and the only hope was in the resurrection power. Or Roy Zuck, when he wrote this, To deny self means to cease rebelling against the king and his rule, to cease being hostile to God, to stop being disobedience. And then he goes on, William MacDonald wrote this, To deny self means willingly to renounce any so-called right or plan or choice and to recognize his lordship in every area of our lives. Those are radical statements. And some of you as Christians may have never heard that before. But this is what Jesus said. That if we are going to come after him, we must deny ourselves. But in our world today, we are suffering from the epidemic of self, aren't we? We are seeing the fruit of a self-theology and philosophy for the last 25 years. It's been all about self, hasn't it? Early on in the early 1980s, writers began to write and to convince us that all the world needed to overcome its woes was self-esteem, self-love, self-awareness. And everything became an exaltation of self. And of course, the church jumped right on the bandwagon. And it became all about us in so many ways. To where we read books now that are entitled Your Best Life Now, because it's all about you. 
There are too many who look at Jesus as a simple supplement to their lives, almost as another vitamin on their shelf. And when things get tough or when they just don't feel right, they say, you know what, I'm going to take a little Jesus today. And they just, you know, pop out a couple, put it in, and uh, hope that things get better. But Jesus never said this. Jesus never set this expectation. What he did say is that I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'll always, be lo- I'll always be with you. I will love you perfectly and unconditionally. My mercy is forevermore. But see, we don't appreciate this thing, that anymore because we don't see ourselves in sin, as a sinful individual before a holy God. We don't see ourselves that way because the self-esteem has trained us to think that we are better than we actually are. To remind ourselves of how desperate we were of Christ and salvation in Him and Him alone. Think about what Jesus had to go through to bring us back into fellowship with God. I don't know about you, but when I see images of even actors portraying Jesus being whipped 39 times, brutally beaten, horrifically crucified... He did that for my beha- on my behalf, not for His. He was perfect. He was sinless. He did it for me. He did it for you. It's our sin that separates us from God. And sometimes Christians today, when things don't go their way, they wonder if God loves them. And I think to them, I think to myself, oh, read your Bible. God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on your behalf. That's how much He loves you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever dismiss that. Don't ever think that that's just irrelevant to your life today. Think of all that God has done to bring you back into a relationship with God. Christianity is a pursuit. You didn't find God. God found you and saved you. So whenever I go through difficulties, if I even begin to even consider that God doesn't love me, I just remember that Jesus came. He died. He was buried, and then he rose again. And all of a sudden, I go from a victim to a victor in a heartbeat because I'm in Christ. So denying ourselves, it's interesting. I love what Greg Laurie said. But the great barrier to discipleship in Jesus Christ is summed up in one word, and that is self. Everything that we see in our world today looks to exalt self. According to the survey done in the Business Week magazine, the best-selling Christian books in the bookstore today are touchy-feely ones that focus on self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-analysis. While missionary biographies and devotionals gather dust on the shelves, so do books encouraging self-sacrifice. Interestingly, the perspective from the secular magazine about the reading interests of many Christians would, contra- would contradict scriptural teaching. The world sees it, that we've made Christianity all about us. Listen to some of these quotes that Pastor Greg brings out. A popular Christian author in his recent book wrote this, Christianity is an adventure of self-discovery that helps believers to become aware of their innate goodness. Really? Holy cow. 
Another Christian author said, self-esteem is the greatest single need facing the human race today. Oh, really? How's that working out for everybody today? As we now see a plethora of those who are infected with the idea of entitlement. Listen to this last one from one Christian psychologist. The Bible makes a person feel good about themselves. Many try to use it to teach that they should hate themselves. But the Bible promotes psychological and emotional health. The Bible doesn't teach that you should hate yourself. The Bible isn't producing or encouraging low self-esteem. The Bible isn't encouraging or producing high self-esteem. The Bible's producing no self-esteem. It's not about you. Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, you've got to get past yourself. See, the fall of creation, the fall of creation infected us permanently with sin. And in the wake of that severance between us and God, that sin severing our relationship with God, man has created himself as the ultimate idol. And now we worship ourselves. And the more we make it about ourselves, the more we lose who our true identity is. Is the world going through an identity crisis today after 25 years of self-esteem teaching? Answer me the question. Absolutely. We don't know who we are anymore. Because the more we exalt self, the farther we get away from God who gives us our true identity because He is our original Creator. But the more we get back to Him, the more we are conformed into His image, the more we deny ourselves is when we allow our true self, and that is who God originally intended us to be, to come to the surface. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I love this. The real test of your being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. He concludes, it's better to forget about yourself altogether. Now, if we had any doubt of, about what Jesus was saying, look at his next qualifier. You must take up your cross. Now to us, we think of the cross as the finality of Jesus' life, but understand the cross was just the means in which to put his flesh to death. He dismissed his spirit. But he specifically talks about the carrying of the cross, taking up your cross. When a criminal was condemned by the Roman, Roman emperor, Empire, to display that condemnation, that criminal was required to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution, wherever that may be. Crucifixion was a violent form of death. And it was used specifically to discourage any kind of rebellion or insurrection. So when the Roman Empire came into a country, seized the country, they then took the worst offenders, those who rebelled, those who withstood, uh, or those who would create insurrection, and they would crucify them publicly and leave their crucified bodies on the roadways leading to the various cities of that region. And one reason the Roman government had the condemned individual carry the cross beam 
in front of everyone to the site of execution was to show the public that the one who rebelled against the authority of Rome was now in subjection to that authority under the weight of condemnation and therefore carrying their crossbeam to their death. In Christ's case, he wasn't a criminal. He committed no crime. But he rebelled against the world and the ruler of this world. And the world thought that they had him. And they marched him down the Via Dolorosa there in Israel carrying that crossbeam, seeing the one who caused insurrection, the one who created rebellion. And he never did. Not against Rome. But he did against the ruler of this world. He did against the world system. And they thought at that moment that he had finally been brought under the subjection of the, the rule of the, the world and the authority of the ruler of this world as he carried it step by step, dropping it, having it to be uh, once again given to him and carried by another. And he made each footstep down the way to Golgotha. And in that moment, in that moment that he died, the world thought they had their victory until God showed them different. See, the one condemned was not him, it was us. It was you and I. And if we are going to promote self, you know who we are rebelling against? God himself. And so taking up our crossbeam is more than just some simple irritation that we may have in life. Carrying our crossbeam means that we are now no longer rebelling against the authority of God. We are no longer living for ourselves. We are living for God and we have allowed Him to take us and to lead us and to guide us wherever He may want to lead, leave us and lead us. That's what he's saying. Taking up the cross was a whole entire life that Christ led. And it ended with the death of his flesh. And in Christ we have died to the old nature. We have died to the old life. And we are a new creation in God. We don't have to do the things anymore that we once did. God has freed us from those things. I'll never forget that moment I became a Christian. It was like a thousand pound weight was taken off my shoulder. And I didn't know what that weight was. It was my sin, my guilt before God. And God in Christ alleviated that of, from me. And now I was a new creation in Christ. And the love that I experienced for the first time, the mercy, the grace, it's just incredible. But now He is calling me to take up my cross to subject myself to the authority of Christ. And that may lead me into opposition with loved ones as it did with Him. It may lead me to the reproach of this world. It may lead me to forsaking family and house and friends and lands and the comforts of this life. It will lead me to complete dependence on God and to complete obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. To proclaim an unpopular message within the world, a pathway of loneliness at times, though I am never alone. A path of suffering for righteousness' sake, a path of slander and shame, 
the pouring out of myself and allowing Christ to fill me, for it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And ultimately, death to self into this world. And then he wraps it up by saying, follow me. It means that he was our perfect example in all things. It means to follow the leader. Who are you following today? If you're on Instagram, I ask you the question, who are you following? Who's important to you? Who do you respect and who do you emulate? I told my daughter that once Jesus gets an Instagram account, I'm on it. I even settle for Paul, Peter, John. I'm all over it. Who are you following? And where are they leading you? And in each case, the word deny, the word take up, and the word follow is in the present imperative in the Greek, which means do it daily. Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross daily. Follow him daily. In fact, Luke brings that to our attention in his rendering when he says in Luke 9.23, And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow after me. But notice what lies in the balance of this all. It is life itself. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life, and it could also be rendered to live for himself, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Life hangs in the balance. It is imperative that you understand that Jesus here is talking about life starting at this moment in time today. I argue that as one who is in Christ, I did not know what true living was until I became a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ, until I was a new creation in Christ. I discovered that after coming to Christ and knowing Him and loving Him and knowing His love for me more importantly, I discovered that before I came to Christ, I wasn't living. I was merely existing. I was merely trying to survive the day at hand. It wasn't until I came to Christ that I knew true life and true living. It wasn't until I came to Christ and Jesus saved me. And when I repented of my sin and I believed on Him because He had been pursuing me, a pursuit that I didn't even recognize, a pursuit that took me through many different trials and many different difficulties and many different experiences... Because I was running away from a God in whom was pursuing me. And then he got a hold of my heart. And then he changed me radically. And I've never been the same since. Jesus is saying, are you truly living? Because if you are going to live for yourself, you're going to lose your life. You're not going to know who you are. But if you lose your life for my sake, that's when it all begins. Not just for any sake. Not for any simple cause. The world is wrapped up in doing good things today, and I'm glad for that to a certain degree. But it isn't until we lose our life for the sake of Christ that we truly begin to understand what life is. And let me explain why I believe that's what this is saying. 
There is a Greek word behind all the English words that you have in the Bible. And the word that is used here in verses 25 and 26 that lie behind the word life and lie behind the word soul is a word that you may be familiar with. Now, you may think that it's just all Greek to you or it's all Greek to me. But the word that lies behind life and soul are the same word in the Greek. It is the word psyche, where we get psychology from. And man for years has tried to repair man through secular psychological means. It is secular psychology that has given us the exaltation of self itself. But Jesus says that you're not going to know what true life is and what it all means until you lose it for my sake. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffner, the theologian in Germany, who began to wrestle with these verses and discovered that God had something incredibly important to say here. See, the more we live for ourselves, the more sin dominates and permeates and guides us and leads us, and we're going to get obscure, we're going to get distorted understandings, and we're always going to be missing what God would have for us. But when we die to self, and we live full on for Christ, is when we become aware of what God originally intended, and we begin to see things as they are. And do you know the world today is changing directions? Do you know that they are now teaching courses on sacrifice and selflessness? And though you may think, well, that's a good step in the right direction, I tell you that even that will be skewed by sin. It isn't until we embrace Christ and lose our life for his sake. That's what he's saying here. If you live for yourself and it's all about you, you're going to lose yourself. And you're not going to know who you are. It's when you die to yourself. It's when you take up your cross. It's when you deny yourself and live for Christ's sake is then when you really discover who the Creator actually wanted you to be. You can only do that in Christ. You can't do this in and of yourself. It starts with your regeneration. You're becoming a new, belief, a new creation in Christ. As one commentator said it, and I thought he was brilliant in what he said, it is the selfishness that makes one's personal happiness the ultimate criterion for all things. It's when we say to ourselves that I want to be happy and this is the way I'm going to go about it, I'm going to live for myself, I'm going to try to allow myself to be happy, is when things really become apparent that we have truly drifted to a place of selfishness altogether. See, to be happy today, we have to have circumstances that will allow our happiness. And people are always trying to create the perfect environment to allow them to be happy. Christ says, I'm going to give you joy regardless of your circumstances. I'm going to give you joy and the ability to be joyful when you hear difficult news. When things are falling apart. When things get difficult. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you that joy to carry you through. My joy doesn't come based upon my circumstances. My joy comes based upon Christ. That's what he's saying here. The more we live for self, the more we lose ourselves. 
The more we live for Him is when we discover what God originally intended and then things become clear. Then we begin to understand. Listen to what some people said. I love this. The Lord anticipated two hindrances to discipleship. The first is a natural temptation to save oneself from discomfort, pain, loneliness, or loss. The other is to become wealthy. As to the first, Jesus warns that those who hug their lives for selfish purposes would never find fulfillment. Those who recklessly abandon their lives to Him, not counting the cost, would find the reason for their existence. Another one went on to write, If we regard life as no more than just this ordinary physical life, if we spend our time and our resources on getting as much out of life as we can, Jesus is saying we will lose life in its more important sense. To spend oneself trying to get the best one can out of this present life, the here and now, is to lose life in the fullest sense. Again, I didn't begin living until I came to Jesus Christ. And it was His work in me that allowed that to occur. To follow Jesus Christ, if we are to come after Him, Let's read our text as we close this morning. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and let me just clarify, those disciples who now knew that he was Messiah, the disciple Peter who had made the the claim and the uh, announcement that there is no way that he should go to Jerusalem and to suffer. And then Jesus rebukes him and says, get your mind on the things of God rather than the things of man. And then after that moment, after they were now considering that their expectation and anticipations were wrong concerning Jesus, he says this to him. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange or in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom.